it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Hope you're having a great day or a great morning. It's going to get better. We have a great show on tap. Rich Lowry will bring us inside the Republican Party as the House gets set and they get committees uh, handed out. And Kevin McCarthy gets called out, but he's willing to take the stand and have respect for that. Uh, today, also, uh, Rick Scott, uh, Senator Braun, uh, Senator Ron Johnson, uh, and Senator Mike Lee will host a press conference to discuss the debt ceiling and what they're willing to give in. Remember, Senator Schumer yesterday... Or was it Monday? Said Republicans need to tell me exactly what they want to cut. Maybe they will. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We have talked about the fact that the Abrams are an incredibly capable system, but it's a very expensive system to operate and to maintain. Uh, It has a jet engine. That doesn't mean that the Ukrainians can't learn it. Uh, It just means that we have to factor all that stuff in. Yeah, they factored in. Guess what? Ukraine says thanks, or I should say tanks a lot. But is that enough? Get another reversal. The U.S. decides to give Ukraine our coveted Abrams tanks. Now it's up to Europe to send theirs. Will they? And how long until our tanks are actually targeting Russians? There's going to be training. There's going to be delivery and everything else. What is it going to take for this administration to act quickly? This is a war. It's 11 11 months old. Number two. And I'm sorry. Swalwell? You all know does not have the or should have the responsibility to serve on the Intel Committee. We are not going to provide him with the secrets to America. Yes. And uh, they won't for uh, they won't for um, the other congressmen either. Uh, We're going to talk about that. The GOP on the move. Committees take shape and showboating lefties like Adam Schiff and Eric Squalwell get the boot. Plus, Pelosi gets a tongue in cheek salute. Number one. Did you take any classified documents with you from the White House? Uh, I, I did not. Do you see any reason for anyone to take classified documents with them leaving the White House? Well, there'd be no reason to have classified documents. Of course, their lead anchor on ABC would have asked those questions if they knew that President Biden did the same thing. Mike Pence, the former VP, comes clean and says he's too, he, too, kept classified documents after leaving office. What does this do for the pressure on President Biden and the case against Donald Trump? Uh, let's bring Miranda Devine, uh, New York Post columnist and author of The Laptop from Hell, Hunter Biden, Big Tech, and the Dirty Secrets the President Tried to Hide. Miranda, I would imagine if you look at all three taking classified documents, you would, this would neutralize all of it. But you say we got to hold your horses a second. It's what did the president have? Where did he have it? And does it link to anything that he was involved with with Hunter and his brother, right? Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that anything neutralizes 
any of it. Um, you know, with Joe Biden in particular, um, he's the president, but there are classified documents that date back from his days as a senator when he had absolutely no right to take classified documents home or to his office. So um, I, I think it's it's uh, a difficult uh, conundrum for the Attorney-General. But um, with Joe Biden, what I found, which I thought was um, very problematic, was there seems to be a link between his classified documents and Hunter Biden. Um, and we know that Hunter Biden lived in the house where some of those documents were found. He drove the Corvette uh, that um, was parked next to the garage, in the garage where some of those documents were kept. And there's an email on his laptop <clears throat> that, um, excuse the frog in my throat, um, that uh, basically looks very much like it came from a classified briefing. At least, you know, it has the flavour of an official uh, briefing, perhaps a classified one. I think Ron Johnson said it looks um, like what he, the sort of briefing that he got, classified briefing he got as a senator when he went to foreign countries. And it's um, a very uncharacteristic email for Hunter, unlike anything else. Well written. Well written, uh, very lengthy. It's 1,300 words. It's very detailed. It has... Uh, a lot of information in it, um, very strategic geopolitical information about Ukraine. It lists 22 points about Ukraine, about its political situation, um, about the upcoming election. This was in 2014 when his father was vice president. And it also predicted that uh, Russia would escalate. Uh, it also predicted that the US would apply sanctions <clears throat> very confidently. And so you wonder where does Hunter Biden get this information? Because every other email on the, the laptop for the nine years it covers is very terse, very low information. And <clears throat> the only time he's voluminous is, uh, you know, when he's talking at personal, uh, having arguments basically with his uh, girlfriends. So <clears throat> this is an unusual right. email. And um, I, I, I think... You know, considering that a week after this email was sent, Joe Biden went to the Ukraine to talk to them about their energy policy. Um, a few weeks uh, after that, Hunter Biden became uh, a board member for the Ukrainian energy company Burisma. So he was obviously trailing his coat. He sent this email to his business partner, Devin Archer, who also joined the board of Burisma. He's wanting the $83,000 a month that Burisma is going to pay him, and he's demonstrating that he's worth it, that he has access <clears throat> to crucial information for Burisma. So uh, we talked Miranda Devine. Miranda, a couple of things. The president, the vice president then, in his last three days in office, flew to Ukraine. What was he doing there? Why did he have to go to Ukraine right before he left? We know he had that, that portfolio. And remember, he did have... Uh, a, a say in their politics. Remember when he said this when he was back in the U.S. in 2018 on the Council of Foreign Relations, cut 15. I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. 
So they said they had they were walking out to press conference. Said, "No, nah. I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars." I said, "You're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here." And I think it was what six hours. I looked. I said, "I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money." Oh, son of a bitch! <laughs> Got fired. Uh, that's typical him bragging about firing someone, inflating his power, and playing a role in Ukraine, which certainly is a place that he is familiar with because he had the portfolio where his son worked at the number one gas company in the region. Yeah, and Joe Biden was backwards and forwards to Kiev all the time. Uh, he went several times. Um, and as you said, it's rather unusual that he did it right before um uh, he left office, and um, there certainly looked like a quid pro quo for the $83,000 a month his son was getting paid uh, because he fired uh, Shokin, the prosecutor, who at the time was investigating the very company, Burisma, that Hunter Biden was working for. And, um, you know, Burisma, in all the emails to Hunter Biden, um, they're constantly saying, what can you do? We want you to do X, Y, Z to help Burisma's reputation, to help Burisma get out from under these investigations that were going on. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it, it, they did get out from under the investigations. After Shokin was fired, um, he, he, the, the, his replacement basically let Burisma off with a slap on the wrist and a little fine. And previously, um, when Shokin was fired, um, there are lies that uh, the Washington Post and so on and European NGOs keep on spreading that um, Shokin was not doing anything about the investigation. He he just um, seized all the property of the owner of Burisma in Kiev. So he was doing something. He was preparing. Well, he claims, I haven't seen evidence of it, but he claims he was about to subpoena Hunter Biden. Wow. Uh, very interesting. Miranda Devine's all over this. So before you close it and say, well, the vice president had it, the former vice president had documents and uh, Trump had documents. Let's just move on. Uh, there's still much more. It's up to David would compare David Weiss, the prosecutor, compare notes with a, with the FBI took from his houses as well as his office. Miranda Devine, thanks so much. Thanks very much. Sorry about my throat. Uh, no problem. All good. Uh, when we come back. Uh, we'll take some calls, one 408 We'll also talk about what Kevin McCarthy did yesterday, standing up and giving rationale, not emotional, a rationale for removing two Democrats from the Intelligence Committee, but not from committees, unlike the previous, uh, the previous speaker. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. This is not anything political. This is not similar to what the Democrats did. Those members will have other committees, but the Intel Committee is different. The Intel Committee's responsibility is the national security to America. Look, I respect Hakeem Jeffries' support of his conference and his people. But integrity matters. And he goes into detail. Is Swalwell had that uh, relationship with the Chinese spy. He got briefed on it by the FBI when he was minority leader. He said the guy shouldn't be on the Intel Committee, and Democrats ignored it. And then you have Adam Schiff leaking all types of things and saying that he had all this stuff on Donald Trump, which he didn't have, and said he had all this uh, uh, leaked all this material to the press. He cannot be trusted. He's a liar. And Kevin McCarthy followed through with it. But I got to tell him, he's smart to let him serve on other committees because he doesn't want this going back and forth forever. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, somebody, they just kicked off all committees because they didn't like what she said prior to getting voted into office. McCarthy points out, I know these people got voted into office for a reason. Obviously, Adam Schiff is whining. Cut 23. You know, sadly, it's going to do damage to the committee uh, to have him use it as this kind of political plaything. This is Kevin McCarthy responding to the demands of the most extreme elements of his conference, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Paul Gosars, uh, and responding to the wishes of his boss down in Mar-a-Lago. His upset is over the fact that we investigated and impeached Donald Trump over his Number one, the latest thing that he did was say, oh, you're not going to believe what's in these taxes. Nothing's in his taxes perpetuating the Russian hoax, that they had things that they're going to expose that's going to get Donald Trump impeached. We know it was all a hoax. He never owned up to that. And then with all this Ukraine situation, he said he had a whistleblower that came forward that he never met with. When it turns out, he met with his entire staff and Adam Schiff. So he can't be trusted. It's the last place he belongs. But because of all this, because people are moving away from Mar-a-Lago and see it's not a problem, they'll see that whatever's happening in New York is pure politics and it'll be settled. They'll see what's going to happen in Georgia should they get a pass. Donald Trump's numbers are picking up. He holds a three-point lead over President Biden in a hypothetical matchup on an Emerson poll. Uh, 44% in politics, 44% said they would support Trump if he ran in 2024, uh, compared to 41% said they support Biden. 58% of Democrats, uh, primary goers and people that will participate, think Biden should be the Democratic nominee, but just 55% say Trump should. Look, I think Nikki Haley is in. I think Mike Pompeo is in. I personally believe that Rick's, uh, Tim Scott will be in uh, running. I think that Christy Nome will be in. I would not doubt uh, that others are going to jump into the fray. Uh, Governor Sununu, I think it's 80-20 that he jumps in. I think that DeSantis will be the longest wait because I think he's got the most momentum and people want to see if he has a misstep or if he says to himself, do I really want to take on the guy that no doubt about it helped me get the nomination and eventually the governor's mansion? Should I just wait four years? Regardless, he's not going to run at 82. Should I just wait it out? Now, Chris Christie would say, don't do that. I waited it out. And by the time I was ready to run after my second term, I was going against Donald Trump, and I couldn't. He was a 
he was an up-and-coming star that nobody could control and nobody could stop, and working for him didn't uh, really turn out to work for him too well. Meanwhile, Josh Hawley is introducing the Pelosi Act, a bill to ban stock trades by lawmakers and spouses named after her because she made a ton of money, as did her husband, for that reason. Here's what he tweeted. Members of Congress and their spouses shouldn't be using this position to get rich. On the stock market today, I'm introducing a ban an ownership of, the, uh, of ownership of stocks by members of Congress. They're calling it the Pelosi Act. And the last thing that I want to tell you before we get to uh, Rich Lowry, and that is we've decided to sell about 30 Abrams tanks, sell, give about 30 Abrams tanks to Ukraine. Why we didn't just commit to that two months ago? So many people are dead, so much infrastructure is destroyed because of it. But now that's supposed to open the way for the leopards. Germans said they wanted some cover. You got the cover. So now that they're poised to do this, game on. They got to get them in place before the Russian offensive that's expected in the spring. Uh, here is uh, Frederick Flingen, who reports on details of Germany actually doing what they said they should have done a while ago. Cut 25. We just got some details from the Germans. They say that their main goal is to create, in the end, two tank battalions that the Ukrainians are supposed to get. That would be about 88 of these Leopard 2 main battle tanks. However, they also say that in a first step right now, they're going to send 14 of these tanks as fast as possible. The Germans also say they want the training for the Ukrainians to start as fast as possible. There was one interesting nuance that we got, Poppy, from the Germans as well, they're saying that they are going to give permission to other European countries that own these tanks to also send these Leopard 2 main battle tanks to the Ukrainians as well. That means the Ukrainians could get a lot of these tanks very quickly because a lot of European nations have these tanks. And they got about 2,000 across Europe. That doesn't take much to train with the M1A1. It's more of a tank complex uh, and it runs on jet fuel, but it'll run on different fuels. But it's going to take more than 30 days to train and to get there. But the fact is that they're going gives the Germans cover should the Russians get aggressive with them, which I think they're eventually going to do anyway. I hate to tell you, uh, Senator Chris Murphy, on the reason we uh, should be giving them the tanks, but we should have given them a while ago. But everything takes way too long. This is a war. Cut 26. I guess what's maddening to me is how hard it has been to sort of mm-hmm. drag Europe along, in particular the Germans. Um, the United States has led from day one. No country has given more assistance to Ukraine than the United States has. But we're pretty far away from this fight. Um, the fact of the matter is um, Vladimir Putin presents an immediate threat uh, to Europe and to the countries in Central and Eastern Europe in particular. So I would like to see a much greater sense of urgency from our European partners. I'd like to see them putting more money on the table instead of having to be dragged there by the United States every time. Right. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham feels the same way. He goes and meets with Zelensky, sees what needs to be done, knows they're not perfect. Cut 29. For God's sake, send a few Abrams tanks into Ukraine. They can handle it. It's been like pulling teeth. They got one foot in the camp of winning and one foot of trying to preserve some kind of off-ramp. What did I learn from meeting with Zelensky? There is no off-ramp. Yes, and that was in a conversation I had with him on television. Thanks for pulling that, Eric. That's Senator Lindsey Graham fresh off Ukraine. Whatever you want to say about Lindsey Graham. He did this uh, with John McCain. They go and find out from the, from, the, from the guys in charge. What do you need? What aren't we giving? What's the communication? Look, they, some, some, they found some corruption in their midst. That's not good. You show a lot of that, people just start bailing out. So Zelensky's got to fix it. Perhaps he did. He better have. Rich Lowry next. Um, Republicans, where they go from here in the, in the favorable senatorial map. Brian Kilmeade Show.
information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. This course on Black history. What are one? Of, what's one of the lessons about queer theory? Now, who would say that an important part of Black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. When you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality, abolishing prisons, that's a political agenda. And so we're on, that's the wrong side of the line for Florida standards. We believe in teaching kids uh, facts and how to think, but we don't believe they should have an agenda imposed on them. And what to think. And that's what Rich Lowry said, that uh, Ron DeSantis is on the money here, right to reject the African-American studies curriculum, not not the title, but what's inside the curriculum and the courses. That's the issue. Rich Lowry joins us now. Rich, uh, the governor, I think, is right on this again. Correct. Yep. So so the course, it's it's proprietary. So the college board has never released it, but it's gotten leaked. We, a guy uh, writes for us, Stanley Kurtz, has been writing about it uh, for months now. A uh, website down in Florida published the, the outline of the curriculum. It's divided into four parts. The first three parts seem okay. I mean, there's some terminology in there that kind of makes you go, huh? But it's the fourth part that's clearly a problem. You know, favorable treatment of Black Lives Matter, favorable treatment of the reparations movement. All left-wing writers, uh, some neo-Marxist writers, recommended, and it includes uh, black queer studies and intersectionality and, and all this crap, which is one thing if you go to college and you want to waste your time on that and have your mind poisoned with that on your, on your own time, your own money, fine. But the idea that that would be a curriculum, part of a curriculum at a public school is crazy. So DeSantis is, uh, once again, absolutely right here. And indications are the college board could be buckling. The college board said it now is revising the, the curriculum. I don't think this kind of course should, should be in high school at all. I think it's inherently uh, intellectually corrupt, and African-American history is part of American history, and everyone should be taking American history and learning, learning it through that prism. But um, at the very least, it looks like DeSantis is going to um, uh, force the college board to improve this curriculum. Yeah, I mean, but you know, I understand, too, if you want to drill down and talk about, you know, you love history, but you love the colonial era. You love history, but you want to, you love the, uh, the American Indians and the tribes. If that's an area of interest, I, I don't have a problem with that. African-American studies. I remember I was out in L.A., big Hispanic studies was uh, because of the rising Hispanic culture. All right, fine. But as it relates to America, it would be, certainly help. And for every Al Sharpton, you should have a Shelby Steele. Mm-hmm. And that's it. If you want to give, just give balance, that's how people get an idea of where they stand by getting yeah. different perspectives. I, I just don't get that. But what do you think that is this a move of a governor concern or is this a move of a popular governor who's thinking national office? Well, I think the, the, the national stuff has to be in the back of his mind all the time. I think it has been for a while. But I think this is just an exercise of uh, um, – Good, good governance. You know, public schools are, by definition, the province of public authorities, and it's not their responsibility just because the college board shows up and says, "Hey, we have this AP class." To say, "Okay, oh yeah, that's great. Go ahead." You know, no questions asked. They, this, this is the sort of examination that should happen with with every course like this. And I think one of the reasons the college board may be backing down here is they realize that other red states were going to follow DeSantis's lead, and the college board, their whole thing goes away if only half the country is going to take their 
courses and take take their exams and uh, all that. So so they're scared. And uh, this is a proper exercise of DeSantis's authority. It's the kind of thing he'll get national credit for. He deserves national credit for. But at the at the end of the day, it's it's just um, serving the, the parents and children of Florida in the way way he should. He also came in and he said, "Yes, and why am I walking into these classrooms and everyone's on their phones? Why don't mm-hmm. they put phones into a cubby hole?" Or put it into a bin and focus. And people say that's so oppressive, it's autocratic. Listen to what he was saying. Cut 31. I think to myself, why are these kids on their phones during class all the time? I mean, I think a school district would be totally within their rights to say, you know what? Leave your phone in some cubby or something. Go sit in class, learn. And then if you get it at recess and you want to text people, fine. But they should not be always on their phones uh, being distracted from the lessons. And so I think that our school boards will be able to lean in on some stuff, too, to buttress what we're doing, and I look forward to being able to do that. So what's wrong with that? Why do people get upset at that? I would think that that would that'd be something that would blur party lines. I was wrong, yeah, Absolutely. I mean, there's there's no doubt. Social media and these phones, very powerful tools. You know, all, all of us are addicted to them at some level. But they're, they're horrible for the attention span of of kids. And I think he's absolutely right. There, there's no reason that they should have a phone in a classroom. They should be sitting there, paying attention, learning how to focus on something for more than 90 seconds. And that that's just that's a crucial constituent part of intelligence, <laughs> being able to focus and concentrate and and uh, we're, we're letting social media and these phones um, rob, rob our kids of it. And, and I'll tell you, Rich, the other thing that I find really intriguing is the school choice. It's getting momentum. Of course, Arizona, this Katie Hobbs is going to try to reverse it. But letting the money follow the kid. Mm-hmm. So on average, let's say it's $8,000 in Iowa for the fourth grader. to. Uh, on average, that's how much it's going to cost. You could take that $8,000 now. And thanks to the governor and the legislature, they had a they was a red wave in Iowa, and they could follow the kid to a private school. Like there's a lot of people listening to us right now who are paycheck to paycheck and can't afford a private school, yep. but they would love to. If you're in any of these eight states, the answer is going to be yes. And now Oklahoma too. I interviewed the governor this morning. Yeah. It's it's a very powerful idea. I, I forget the number is, but just it's it's a huge number of kids have just exited the public schools since the pandemic. You know, par- parents wanted in in, in uh, person instruction, or they saw what was going on more in the schools because of, they they could uh, you know look over yeah. their kids' shoulder during these Zoom sessions. And um, I, I think it's it's a uh, it's a great trend, and it, it should be something that's available not just to affluent kids but to poor kids as well. And there are a couple states you mentioned them have been leaders uh, on this, and Florida is another one. Um, They they have a great school choice program going back to Jeb Bush. So yesterday in the afternoon around 12, we heard that Mike Pence, the former vice president, had classified documents. They were packed into boxes. When they found it, they doesn't know what it is. They put it in a safe. The FBI came to his house and is grabbing it and some some other documents too. We know the ongoing investigation into Biden, and we know the uh, the charges that could come down against Trump. What is your take on the uh, on the docudrama? Well, uh, I, you know, I was disappointed to hear, hear that about Pence. It does make it seem more like, okay, this is something that that everyone does. And I, I think anyone who is serving in the administration, last administration, or the, the current one, is is desperately searching right now. You know, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, they got to be looking everywhere just just to make sure. Um, it seems you know Pence is not as bad as as Biden. 
um, and and dealt with it forthrightly, which Biden, despite their insistence otherwise, did not. I mean, Biden's private lawyers find the documents on November 2nd. They don't notify the FBI. They notify the Biden White House. The Biden White House doesn't notify the FBI. They hand them over to the National Archives in the hopes that they'll just be filed away and the whole thing will be forgotten. It's the National Archives that tells the Justice Department, and that gets this rolling. And I think the CBS story ultimately came from the uh, the, the prosecutor that Garland had looked uh, tapped to initially uh, look into this. Um, and even then, they didn't say, oh, by the way, we found more documents in the garage on December uh, 20th. They didn't volunteer that, that information. So they haven't been transparent at all, and they're still unanswered questions. But I just think this, this whole series of events it makes it impossible to indict uh, Trump. Biden's not being indicted. He's a sitting president. You can't do it. Of course, you know, Pence, it would be ridiculous to prosecute him for this. But we, we need to update these laws, make sure they make sense, see what the procedures are, um, come up with better procedures, and make sure, right. especially, we're not prosecuting low-level people for offenses that uh, uh, famous people get a pass on. I know. Marines are, Marines are expelled from the military, and the the politicians get to say I have no regrets and I there was no there there. So yep. that's the president. So Miranda Devine was just on and said, listen, before you throw up your hands and say they're all the same, the, they want to see what documents they took. And will we get that answer, uh, Rich, with all your years of experience? You know, was uh, you know, was the stuff from the from the 80s? This, they said from his Senate years and from the 80s about Saddam Hussein and Jacques Chirac. Mm-hmm. Or was it something to do with. Ukraine. Was it mm-hmm. something to do with deals with Romania that would have benefited some of his business deals? Or are they just arbitrary? And the question is, I was talking to senators. I know you could talk to uh, 50 of them and drop the hat. They don't know how you leave by mistake with, with, uh, mm-hmm. from a skiff yep. with this classified information at any level. They don't get it. They go, I, don't, I don't know how you walk out with it. But they yeah. said Joe, Joe Manchin from- was good on, on this on, on Sunday. He, he said you go into the skiff and then and then you, you put it back, put it back on the table, and then the, the person at the door asks, "Are you clean?" And then you make make sure once again that you don't have them, and then you leave, and it's and it's not a problem. Um, I, I'm not sure we're going to get the answer to what they are. I, I think it's it's hugely relevant. I, I, that's one thing I wanted to know about the the Trump documents from the from the beginning. You know, if it really was like really sensitive nuclear uh, material, as we were told initially, that's one thing. If if it's if it's not, you know, and it's letters from Kim Jong Un that he likes as a keepsake, that's entirely another. So I think that that context does make a difference. Um, we can sort of tell. We can triangulate from Trump that since there are no longer any alarming reports about the nature of the material probably wasn't that alarming to begin with, but I doubt we'll be told, you know, because the stuff is kind of a black box. You'd, let's say it's classified, so you can't know. So the Emerson poll, which is not the standard that I go by, but it's worth uh, talking about, has former President Trump holding a three-point lead over President Biden, a hypothetical matchup. 44% of the people in the poll said they would support Trump in 2024, compared to 41% for Biden. 58% of Dems want Biden to run. 55% of Republicans think that Trump should be the nominee. Also, Trump holds a 26-point uh, lead over the closest potential primary competitor. You guessed it, it's Ron DeSantis. So Trump is ticking up because he's been quiet, and the investigations have not mm-hmm. come forward. If he escapes Georgia, it looks like he'll escape Mar-a-Lago. New York is pure politics. What do you think, Rich? I think he has a 50-50 chance to win the, the nomination or so, you know, it's, it's still very early. And then if he won the nomination, he has a 50-50% chance to win the, the general. And, you know, there have been other, other polls in the general showing Biden ahead, but just narrowly, you know. So uh, I don't think it's it, – in the scheme of things, it's, it's a matchup most people in the country – 
want to see again, <laughs> but it might be the matchup we end up with. Right. I would say this, and you remember this vividly, Senator Obama was uh, at least 20 points down from Hillary Clinton. And mm-hmm. by the time they got to the first primary, Obama was surging. John mm-hmm. Edwards was strong. Hillary Clinton uh, would not get the nomination, even though she'd win some late primaries. And she really never got over that, I don't think. Uh, yep. But he came out of nowhere. So the establishment was able to get behind him. So it doesn't mean Ron DeSantis is not going to get a lot of momentum. Yeah, and, and you kind of feel stupid every, every time, that every cycle, by like a, uh, two weeks from, from the Iowa caucuses, you feel dumb because all of a sudden someone's come from nowhere. You've been talking about it for two years. You haven't been talking about this person, and all of a sudden they're there. And that's, that's going to uh, that, – something like that inevitably happens. It happens every time. Right. Uh, we'll see where it goes. Uh, I, right now – if I was to say outside, and these are just, just what you think. I'm not saying you're locked into this. Outside Trump, who's in, who else do you expect to be on that stage? Uh, who, who to beat? Who will be in? Republicans. Oh, well, I, Nikki, clearly, clearly. Uh, Pompeo, uh, clearly. Uh, I think, uh, and, and, you know, and, and Abbott or uh, uh, Asa Hutchison is, is looking at it. Um, and uh, quite possibly Tim Scott. Um, you know, Ted Cruz, I think, would want to do it. I, I'm not sure. I think he may have said, you know, he wouldn't run if Trump Trump uh, ran, although Nikki said the same thing. Is she still going to run? Um, so I think it will be, um, and I'm probably forgetting some, but, you know, like eight, eight, eight to ten people. I would think that no, Christy Noem's going to be in. I would mm-hmm. think that Mike Pence is going to be in. Oh, yeah, of course, Pence. Right. Yes, Pence uh, is, I would is, think Pompeo's going to be in, Nikki Haley. Believe it or not, the one that probably has the most momentum and the most heat that Democrats fear the most, I legitimately believe he is up in the air. And, and here's why. Because he knows that Donald Trump is done in four years. He knows he's got stuff to do here. He's so confident that he's not going to lose momentum because he's, he, that's the way he lives his life, extremely confident. And I also think that to a degree he knows that if Donald Trump doesn't get behind him, he doesn't get the nomination. And will he feel comfortable going at Trump the way Trump's going to go at him? Does he see a benefit knowing that Trump is going to be gone in four years? Mm -hmm. So I really believe it's 50. I think out of everybody you mentioned, I think that DeSantis is the one least the least guaranteed. That's that's very interesting. Um, that sounds plausible to me. Um, I, I just think it would be a mistake because he's just he's something always happens in your second term as a governor. Something is outside of the control of your event of, of events um, outside of your direct control, and it's just very unlikely that he's going to be a, as hot a commodity as as he is now. So I think even though there, there are huge risks, you know, Trump is formidable. Trump Trump is going to make his life miserable. Um, that if he really wants it, that this is the time. Understood. And who would ever think a president uh, who is uh, pro- twice brought under impeachment, January 6th, and everything else would still be leading the pack? We've never, we will never see anything like this again. Yeah, he's still standing. Rich Lowry, more than that, he's leading. Yeah. <laughs> Rich Lowry, thanks standing so much. And, and, and walking and or running. <laughs> yes, it's unbelievable. No, he doesn't like to walk or run. He takes the car. <laughs> Uh, Rich, thank you. Yeah, he's uh, not standing. He's sitting at his desk. I, yeah. I stand corrected. Right. And we'll see what happens when he can tweet again. And he wants to get back on Facebook, so that should be interesting. Rich, thanks. When we come back, I'll take your calls. one 408 Busy day. So glad you're here. Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. 
From his mouth to, to your, your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. There is a clear distinction, clear distinction, which I think we should make here. We have three principles now, former President Trump and Vice President Pence and President Biden, where we found these documents in places they never should have been. The question was, how did each of these principles react? And the reaction by President, former President Trump was one of obstruction, basically saying to the archives and others, I don't have them. What I have are mine. I can keep them. And it's none of your business. Well, what he, what he said is, I can declassify, and I know that a lot of people were bent out of shape with that. That was Senator Dick Durbin. When he talks about all three, we're talking about Mike Pence, we're talking about President Biden, and we're talking about President Trump. Now, let me ask you something. Is obstruction leaving something in your house for 16 years and not telling anybody? Is obstruction leaving it at minimum in an office for six years and not telling anybody? Is obstruction not leaving it by your Corvette in your garage and not telling anybody? So because you're not asked about it, you don't give it, and they have to find it on their own, and it's Donald Trump is the only one being obstructive? Trump gave 16 boxes. I don't love the way Trump handled Mar-a-Lago. I wouldn't have left one box. But he took 16 boxes. He goes, oh, yeah, take them back. They go, we want, we, want to hold, we want to take a look at this one. And he goes, well, I'd like to hold on to this. They go back and forth. They said, well, in the meantime, would you lock it up? He goes, yeah, I'll lock it up. Then here's a subpoena. We want it all. He goes, well, we're, I'm not going to comply with that subpoena. Let's talk about it. Next thing you know, they raid. They had to raid because Donald Trump was going to sell it to the Russians. Right. Donald Trump is out of money in between golfing with Lindsey Graham and getting Truth Social off the ground. He was going to call up Vladimir Putin and say, I got this really great intelligence sheet I got to sell to you or to the Ukrainians. So there's, they were treated separately. Again, I don't love the way Trump did it, but I really don't like the way President Biden's doing it. When you only find six documents and you could have cleaned out the house, you wonder what was there before you got to the house. But that's what they found in Wilmington. What did you take with you? I just don't trust anybody in this process. Except I have to say Mike Pence, the most honest man I've ever met. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. From 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, This hour, we're going to be joined by Alfredo Ortiz, president and CEO of Job Creators Network and author of a brand new book, The Real uh, the real race revolutionaries, how minority entrepreneurship can overcome America's racial and economic divides. And I'm also privileged to have in studio, if you're watching Fox Nation, uh, Dr. Richard Haas, president of the Council of Foreign Relations and author of a brand new book uh, out this week, Bill of Obligations, 10 Habits of Good Citizens, Which We Need. And before we get to, uh, to Richard Haas, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We have talked about the fact that the Abrams are an incredibly capable system, but it's a very expensive system to operate and to maintain. Uh, It has a jet engine. That doesn't mean that the Ukrainians can't learn it. Uh, It just means that we have to factor all that stuff in. Yeah, Ukraine says tanks a lot, but it's not enough. And yet another reversal. The U.S. decides to give Ukraine our coveted Abrams tanks, about 30. Now it's up to Europe to send theirs. Will they? And how long until our tanks actually are targeting Russians? What is it going to take for this administration to give the Ukrainians everything they need to be successful? Number two. And I'm sorry. Swalwell, 
you all know, does not have the or should have the responsibility to serve on the Intel Committee. We are not going to provide him with the secrets to America. GOP on the move. Committees take shape. Showboating lefties get the boot. Plus, Pelosi gets a tongue-in-cheek salute. Number one. Did you take any classified documents with you from the White House? Uh, I, I did not. Do you see any reason for anyone to take classified documents with them leaving the White House? Well, there'd be no reason to have classified documents. Right. Mike Pence, the former VP, comes clean and says he, too, uh, unwittingly kept classified documents after leaving office. But does this uh, what does this do for the pressure on President Biden and the case against Donald Trump? We'll discuss that. But first things first, uh, yesterday, uh, Richard Haas, we found out that the administration has decided to give about 30 Abrams tanks to Ukraine. Do you think this is a good move? I think it's a good move, but I don't think it's a game changer. It'll encourage the Germans, gives them cover so they don't feel exposed as the only ones doing this. But 30 tanks are 30 tanks. Take Ukraine, as you just heard, time to get up to speed on them. So I don't think this will in and of itself tilt the uh, tilt the equation. But it will, will it allow the Germans to have a reason and cover to put their leopard tanks into play? 100%. And it also sends a message to Putin that who's betting that time favors him. This shows that the Western alliance, even though it went through a rough couple of days, is still hanging together. It is uh, hanging together. How fractured was it on this tank situation? Because I know Finland, uh, Poland is saying, yeah, I'll give my German tanks over. And then the foreign minister said to Germany's foreign minister said, yeah, you can if you want. And they say all across Europe is 2,000. Judging the, the much feared spring offensive, how many tanks do the Ukrainians need to hold it off? I don't know how to give a number because I don't know confidently just how capable the Russians are. So if you say 100 or 200, and the question again is how well they use them, it's the quality of their, of, their, of their use. But again, I think this makes it far less likely that Russia can do anything decisive militarily. What I don't know, Brian, is whether Ukraine will be able to use these tanks offensively to really change the, the military equation. I'm somewhat skeptical of that given how hard it is to dislodge dug-in troops. Um, what's the biggest surprise about this conflict 11 months in? How well Ukraine has done. If we had had this conversation 11, 12 months ago, I think both of us would have agreed that the deck was seriously stacked against Ukraine and the combination of how well Ukraine has done and how the West has, for the most part, rallied around it and how poorly the Russians have done. I would have been surprised on all of those. Right. Uh, I remember we had Admiral Chavides on, and— he said the best thing that Zelensky could probably do is go to Lviv and set up a, an outside government to protect himself, so maybe set up a, a type of an insurgency. So with the people in the know and the intelligence that we have, uh, how concerned are you that we did not know how inept and how ill-equipped the Russians are? We clearly got that wrong, and I think it's a legitimate question for the Congress to look into, for the intelligence community to look into itself, to do a – why did we get this so wrong? It's not the first time we've had big intelligence mistakes. We obviously got certain things during the Cold War wrong. By and large, it's interesting. Most of our mistakes are on the side of building up the opponent. We think they're better than they are. So I would like to know what was it about either the information or the analysis that led us to think the Russians were much better than they were. Do you think that Vladimir Putin did not know that they weren't this good? Is there that much grift within their defense department that people are getting this money and not putting it to troops, to bases, to equipment, to innovation? Short answer, uh, I think Vladimir Putin did not know. I think he was genuinely confident going into this, both about the strength of his own forces and about the weakness of the West. So, yeah, I think he – look, 
he is not the recipient of honest information. You know, the expression, shoot the messenger. Well, there, it's not just an expression. They do it. <laughs> they do it. Yeah, so uh, my guess is no one was delivering him bad news in part because it would have put a spotlight on their own corruption. Um, people just watch as the Russians, through drones and through rockets, are just trying to take apart civilian targets and infrastructure. If this continues... Can Ukraine withstand and win a war of attrition against the Russians, being that the Russia is not really getting hit? It's rough. The costs of this war keep mounting. And <clears throat> what you raise is a legitimate point of view. It's, it's going to also increase the cost of rebuilding Ukraine. One of the things Ukraine wants is greater capability to go after Russian forces that are doing just what you're saying, the missiles, the drones, and the rest, because this is getting ex- increasingly expensive. Can you believe that Russia needs North Korean armaments, rockets. Can you believe they're asking Iran for drones? I mean, who was, who was or who is the, the behemoth here? Who's the big brother? No, again, it's part of where we got it wrong, that the Russian are not able to produce that themselves. It also seems they're not getting things from China. That might be a small piece of good news. So the fact that they're reliant on the North Koreans and the Iranians is good news. The bad news is that the Iranians and North Koreans are providing those things. Conventional wisdom is if we show any equivocation in Ukraine, China says, that's it. We'll wear them out and we'll take Taiwan. We'll see that after a short period of time, NATO breaks, the West breaks. Is that a, Richard Haas, is that something you subscribe to, that China's watching this closely? China is watching this closely, I would think. Look, no one should have any illusions. China wants to bring Taiwan into the fold. That's, no one can argue that. The real question is when and how. China, I believe, has not ruled out using military force. So I think they're looking very closely at the military lessons of this war, about systems and so forth. They're looking at the sanctions issue, and they're looking at their ability to take on uh, Taiwan and whether the United States would get involved. I think the biggest factor right now that China didn't expect is Japan that Japan is leaning so much farther forward on its own defense. I believe that is slowing China down. Is it gone beyond talk? Absolutely. Japan has not only pledged to double its defense, it's acquiring strike weapons. Essentially, they're signaling China that if there's a war about Taiwan, Japan will be involved. Richard, how unbelievable is it that we're almost looking at Vietnam, too? Not a place, not only as somebody that we might be able to count on, where we can put possible manufacturing opportunities. And you grew up in the 70s and 80s, and who would think we're at this point right now? History uh, never, never fails to uh, surprise. They look at China as, a, as, a big, as big a problem as we do, don't they? Absolutely, and they're a lot closer to it. And are they right, too? Absolutely. I think China is not a status quo power. And much more assertive, potentially aggressive, much more repressive at home, mercantilist in its economic policy. So, yeah, I mean, the hopes that we all had, I don't say we all had, the hopes that many had over the last couple of decades that China would evolve in ways to become slightly more uh, inside the system, inside the international architecture, haven't panned out. And China now is not, I wouldn't put them in the same box by any means as Russia. They're not a revolutionary power like Putin. China's caught in between. On some hand, they still want to benefit from the economic involvement they have, the trade, the investment, but they're also not a status quo power geopolitically. I want to talk about your book, Bill of Obligation, Ten Habits of Good Citizens. Democracy doesn't work if we, if we don't buy into it and understand we have an obligation for it. Going back to the 60s when Kennedy said, what can you do for your country? That's the mindset you want to bring back. Absolutely. I think we're so stuck on our rights. And don't get me wrong, rights are obviously important. Last I checked, the Bill of Rights are the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. 
Uh, and we still have what Lincoln called the unfinished work in America to make the rights real. But rights alone are not what a democracy is about. We also have obligations to each other, and we also have obligations to this country. What do you think the ten, what are the ten in your book? Well, I can see if I can remember them all. Actually, I have my cheat card. I'll, I'll leave you with one. Well, I was just off the top of your head, which one stands Well, the out? first one is to, is to be informed. I think we need informed citizens. Uh, I want involved citizens, but I want them, as Ronald Reagan said, I don't just want patriotism. I want informed patriotism. So we want Americans to get up to speed on our politics <clears throat> and then to get involved. It allows you not to be e- easily manipulated. <clears throat> Obviously, you have to. It's, there's so much coming at us. Uh, so much information, we're drowning in it. So the question is, how do we how do we deal with uh, with that? The last one I think is uh, is also you know central, which is the idea of putting country first, more important than person, our own ambitions, more important than our political party. We've got to be putting our country first, and that is very consistent. You mentioned JFK. Ask not. It's all about putting the country first. Profiles and courage. The book he wrote with Ted Sorensen is all about again people who are willing to stand up for principle or sometimes embrace compromise when it was good for the country, even at cost to their own political How future. is that different than patriotism? Well, patriotism is, is good, but patriotism can't be unconditional or uncritical. What, again, you, what you want to have is you want to say, is what my country is doing right? Is it good for most of our citizens? I don't think we can have, again, an unconditional or, or blind patriotism. You know what the problem is? And, it's, <clears throat> and no one can fix this, uh, but it, an awareness can get you there. How do you appreciate something you've always had? And nobody can tell you, no one has to tell you after the Civil War, no one has to tell you after the Revolutionary War, uh, War of 1812, wow, we almost lost it. What you say is so important, and I was wrong. I never would have written this book years ago because I never thought it was necessary. I, I don't know about you. I, I get up in the morning. I worry about a lot of things. We talked about China. I talked about Russia, Iran, North Korea, terrorism. Okay, I got a long list of things I worry about. I'm a foreign policy guy. Five years ago, I never would have woken up and said, hey – I'm going to write a book about American democracy because I'm really worried about it. Because I, I That's why you did it. Exactly. I basically came to the point, one, we can't take it for granted. And two, unless we sort this out, we're not going to be able to deal with any of our external challenges. How much would it help, not only for everyone to get your book, but to go back to the fundamentals of history, American history, and this remarkable story? You don't have to whitewash it. It's not perfect by any stretch. No. But it is a really unbelievable story. It's an unbelievable story, and you shouldn't whitewash it because we have had flaws. What's good, though, we've also, we've also corrected many of them. Yeah. The fact that we have the adaptability and the flexibility. Indeed, one of the things that distinguishes us from authoritarian systems, we're able to face up to what we, what we conclude are mistakes. We didn't get the race issue right. We've made some changes. People came to different views of Vietnam. We then got out. So the idea that we are self-correcting, I would think is one of the the great advantages of any democracy, particularly ours. A little bit more with uh, Dr. Richard Haas in just a moment. His book is now out. you got to grab it, especially if you're a parent. Bill of Obligations, 10 Habits of Good Citizens, American Citizens. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. A few more minutes with Dr. Richard Haas, President of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of a brand new book, Bill of Obligations, 10 Habits of Good Citizens. You're a teacher out there. You got to get this. If you're a parent out there concerned about your child not really understanding how special this place is because it's the only place he he or she knows, uh, this is the perfect thing to get. And uh, so, so, Richard, you decided to move yourself out from the play-by-play of of uh, our foreign policy for a moment and just talk about the country. Overall, as you look at where we're at right now, 
You think that after uh, January 6th that we got a wake-up call as a country? Do you think that people appreciate it more, especially the midterms seem to go pretty well? Up to a point, but I don't think we've made fundamental changes. We're still not teaching civics in our, in our schools. I don't think most people have really changed the way they get information. You know, my, my argument is always don't single-source it, multi-source it, be, be, you know, scrutinize it, it carefully. So I think we're probably too sanguine. And, I, and again, I'm not selling America short, but my view is we're probably too sanguine. Can I just follow up on one thing you said? You said parents ought to get it. Reagan, another quote of his, he said the most important room in America is the dining room. It's the kitchen. It's where parents talk to their kids over meals. And I really think that's true, that that becomes central. And part of what I'm trying to do is to get parents to have that conversations with their kids as well as teachers. You know, what's interesting is that uh, Bill O'Reilly, when he went back to, I think it was Harvard or, yeah, I think it was Harvard, he's a middle-class guy. And he said, just being around these Ivy Leaguers, he said, what I glean from is not that they're necessarily smarter, but the parents went out of their way to bring this conversation to the dinner table where maybe they took what they knew and shared it with their kids who shared with their kids. And that's what happens. It becomes a cycle of positivity and others don't. So if you're saying to yourself, that doesn't happen at my table, change it today. I agree. What did you read in the paper? I agree. I think that a half hour at dinner with your kids is probably the single most important thing parents can do. I felt really good when both my kids were thinking about college that they wrote essays about dinner conversation. That's where they felt they came of age, and that's where they first got aware of what was going on. And, I, again, you know, you're going to eat, so take advantage of it. So just if we could take a little bit of a, a march around the world – uh, when we look at what's happening right now with um, the aftermath of the Abraham Accords, we have a belligerent, emboldened to a degree, Iran. Do you worry when those when those more sophisticated drones got delivered to Russia? Are you saying to yourself, if you're Israel, what are you thinking? If you're, if you're Israel, you've got to really focus on Iran and basically decide what it is you're prepared to tolerate, but also where your red lines are. And if Iran gets certain capabilities, what are you prepared to do to, to stop them? And do they have a reason to doubt that we're going to be behind them? It's a good question. Uh, I don't know at the moment the degree of strategic planning the United States and Israel have had. It's not just U.S. and Israel. It's also Saudi Arabia and others. It's one of the reasons it's important to repair that relationship. It, it's it, broken right now, though. It is broken, yes. And we, it's important that we're on the same page in dealing with Iran. But we could also tighten the sanctions. We could also look for things we could do more to help the, the opposition. We have lost partners. I mean, we did have China backing off for Iran for maybe an administration ago, and we, we did have Russia say, okay, that's gone. I mean, China could not care less if we asked them to back out, and Russia has, has strengthened that relationship to a place I never thought it would be before. No, we have lost partners, and that was one of the mistakes, I thought, even though I was not in favor of the 2015 nuclear deal, getting out of it unilaterally isolated us in some ways more than Iran. Uh, Paris Agreement? What do you think? Were you glad we got out of that? And were you glad we're back in it? Which Paris Agreement? Uh, the climate change agreement. Oh. Uh, look, my, my enthusiasm for climate diplomacy is low. Uh, Mine is less. <laughs> <laughs> I th- which, don't get me wrong, climate change is a real, real threat. Uh, but I actually have come to the conclusion after what was a COP27 that if there's going to be any real progress on climate, it's less likely to happen through diplomacy than it is through technology. Things like carbon capture, batteries, uh, renewables, nuclear energy. I think we're going to need a whole suite of responses. But I, I, I have real doubts about the world's going to come up uh, with a collective approach. One other tool we should use, trade. 
One of the big mistakes of the United States not being in the Pacific Trade Agreement is not – it would give us a good way to push back against China. But also if you have trade agreements, then you could introduce climate-related uh, requirements into those. So I think we're making a big mistake. But the future is not going to be global you – know, 192 countries meeting on, uh, on climate diplomacy is not going to work. It won't, uh, but maybe getting some uh, trade agreements uh, would work, especially that area. Like you said, you've, you've, you're heartened by where Japan is. So go out and uh, and pick out uh, Richard's Richard House's brand new book. It's called Bill of Obligations: Ten Habits of Good Citizens. Richard, it's great to see you uh, in studio with us. So I'm I'm really excited you wrote a book. Write another so you can come back. Oh, have me back even before another. Oh, that'll be good. So you're not with another network. Uh, no, I'm uh, I'm a freelancer. All right, Pete. Make sure we get a cell number before he leaves. Thanks a lot. Back in a moment, we talk about jobs and how it relates to race in just a moment. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. In 15 minutes, I'll be able to take some of your calls from around the country. But right now, a special thanks to Dr. Uh, Richard Haas for coming in. Uh, now let's talk about jobs and, and what it takes to be successful. Alfredo Ortiz is the president and CEO of Job Creators Network and author of a brand new book called The Real Race Revolutionaries, How Minority Entrepreneurship Can Overcome America's Racial and Economic Divides. And believe it or not, he doesn't blame uh, racism for the problem. It's all about things that are overcomable, and it's a little bit about maybe things you're learning in your house. Uh, and it is you could still achieve the American dream. Uh, Alfred, uh, this whole book came out of your testimony in front of Congress, in front of the Ways and Means Committee. Can you expand on that? Yes, absolutely, Brian, and thank you very much uh, for having me on the show. Uh, last spring, uh, I uh, gave a testimony in front of the entire House Ways and Means uh, Committee, where I was the sole Republican witness. And uh, as you can imagine, you know the uh, the, the Democrats and their witnesses and the, the members uh, were pushing that the only way to actually achieve, uh, you know, the American dream or to actually uh, close the divide of racial and economic divide amongst races. It's for more government policies and more government intervention, and I, of course, countered that by saying that reducing the hurdles to entrepreneurship by having less government, in fact, uh, it, not more, is truly the best way to empower minorities to improve their economic outcomes. Now, as you can imagine, the Democrat members and witnesses didn't take uh, uh, too, too well to my, uh, to my testimony and, in fact, claimed that I was inappropriate and ignorant to argue that minorities can overcome that through uh, entrepreneurship. So that was Stacey Plaskett, a delegate from the House from the U.S. Virgin Islands. She she, she was troubled by your rhetoric, saying just give people an opportunity. Your rhetoric was stop helping. Exactly, exactly. And by the way, Brian, just a little bit on me. I came from a poor background. I'm the firstborn here, uh, son of, you know, uh, immigrant parents. My dad was a tailor. My mom was a housekeeper. On trash day, I used to go around collecting news, uh, newspapers and aluminum cans out of trash cans with my mom, uh, cashing that in at the YMCA. I was the first one to finish high school, college, grad school, right? I started my own two businesses, and, you know, I was standing next to the president of the United States, uh, President Trump, as a commissioner of a, uh, of a minority uh, uh, excellence, uh, White House Excellence Initiative, yet she called me ignorant and inappropriate to be able to make those comments. So a couple of things. Number one, uh, are there people that look at you and say, I don't want to hire an Hispanic? Uh, you know, I, 
I don't like his background. I'm, I'm only going to hire white people. Do you find that? Well, you know, look, right. I mean, uh, I am. Uh, I'm not saying at all that racism doesn't exist in this country. I mean, I tell you, I have been a victim of racism. I know what that what it feels like, and what, that does exist. But look, what I want people to look at me as is a great hire. Period. If I happen to be Hispanic, wonderful. That's great, right? But I am first and foremost a great hire, right? I, or, or a great student or whatever you want to call it, right? But that's what I think is missing in this argument and that the left constantly pushes this. They, their, their default, their go-to is always about racism. And this is what the book argues is that there are many other issues that exist out there or reasons why there are uh, disparities amongst races. So let's hear it. What do you, th- what do you think they are? What do you think they are? What well, are the reasons? Well, some, some of them, for example, is simply enough, uh, if you look at the difference between, let's say, uh, Nigerian uh, households, for example, Nigerian American households and Black Americans, right? Nigerian Americans make 50% more uh, th- than Black households. Uh, Lebanese Americans, for example, make 30% more than their Egyptian American households. Argentinian Americans make about 30% more or 50% more than their Dominican households, right? A lot of this is because there are differences between households. There's, uh, uh, you know, in terms of income Family. distribution, yeah. uh, 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 the, the distribution of how many people are in that household, right? Uh, the amount of education, right? So, so there are differences that aren't necessarily due to racism. It's the family. So, for example, if you have two parents who emphasize education, 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 uh, that's what you're going to do. And if that comes in your whole community, not just in your household, that's going to say if that you put that first for generations, that's more than likely going to result in in success. In some level, whether you end up in yeah. academic your whole life, you're going to be paid well eventually if you rise to the top, or you're going to decide that, you know, here's how I'm going to be successful in business because you actually went out and acquired the skills and didn't focus on anybody that didn't like Hispanics, blacks, whites, or, or, or Asians. Right. Absolutely. I mean, simply enough, you know, one point in the book that I love making is that, you know, a Congressional Black Caucus Foundation study found that the median net worth, listen to this, Brian, the median net worth for black business owners is 12 times higher than for black non-business owners. In other words, black entrepreneurs more than eliminate our racial income and wealth gaps earning and saving far more than our median white households. Think about that, 12 times more uh, uh, than, than uh, non-entrepreneur blacks. So if people say, you know, Hispanics can't be successful, or they're always going to be limited, how do you explain the Argentinians? If you say it's impossibly successful really here in this country unless you're an anomaly, how do you explain the success of the Nigerians? And when you were at that testimony in front of Ways and Means, were you struck by the division uh, between the parties Is that and how they viewed the American dream? Yeah, it was unbelievable, uh, Brian. I mean, truly the left was on a different planet when it came to this. I mean, it was was actually very sad because when you think about how important minority entrepreneurship is to this country and small businesses in general, I mean, if you think about it, you know, small businesses contribute two-thirds of new job growth in this country, right? You would think that they would actually be applauding, you know, what I was saying and actually uniting this because – the more strength we have with small businesses, the stronger this country will be, and especially amongst minority entrepreneurs. Here's another quick fact. Ten million minority-owned small businesses in America generate about $2 trillion of annual wealth, and that's projected to triple by 2060. What we need to do for all small businesses, and in particular minority small businesses, 
we need to do less government. We need to let, make government get out of the way, right, and let entrepreneurs do what they do best, which is innovate, which is, you know, believe in themselves, that work ethic, right, the dignity of work. I mean, all of this is what we need to release and allow these uh, uh, small businesses and the minority entrepreneurs uh, to be able to do in this country, to have part of that American dream. When you talk about regulation, are you talking about, for example, incentivizing banks to give out minority loans? Does that not help? Well, so, for example, less regulations, right? Think about Dodd-Frank. You go back a few years to Dodd-Frank. What did that do? It was supposed to right, help all Americans, right, because have a stronger banking system. It actually created a, a, a stronger banking system for the big banks, right? Big banks got bigger. And small community banks, almost 2,000 community banks, which are primarily in minority uh, uh, communities, went out of business. Why? Because they couldn't withstand, they couldn't hold up to the regulatory uh, uh, burden that, that uh, Dodd-Frank was actually uh, uh, you know, really, really putting on them. So what we need to do, we need to get release this government regulations. And quite frankly, one of the things right. we recommend here, we have an eight-point plan, uh, part of our American Small Business Prosperity Plan, that we launched alongside with New Gingrich. One of those is actually uh, helping uh, increase the capital of small business because many cases, right, like Dodd-Frank, we actually made it much harder for minorities to access small business capital. Uh, one exchange I just want to share with you, you talk about Dina Rubio, a Florida restaurateur and member of the Job Creators Network. They testified before the House about the negative economic effects of what you just said, government spending and regulation on her. The hearing chair, Congressman Jim Himes of Connecticut, indicated that he was disappointed that Rubio brought up real world, uh, the, this real world, noting that he'd prefer to stick to supposedly structural racial uh, equity barriers. So he's demanding they focus on the impossibility which he claims exists in the minority community. That's it. You're trying to script testimony. Why have it? Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely ridiculous. And again, her testimony was amazing, right? I mean, and that. What she wanted to talk about, what she thought she was going up there to talk about, was the real-world issues that small business owners face, right? And in particular, her case, right, as a minority small business owner. But that's not at all what they wanted to hear. Let's not talk about the real world. Let's talk about this you know, systemic racism that we always love being our default go-to for every issue that exists in this country. I actually, my testimony, talked about, I know this sounds a little wonky, the earned income tax credit, right? I said, look – the uptake on that thing is about 20% the way it is. But we actually tested the exact same concept, right, the exact same wording, except we changed the name of it to the Working Americans Credit. And guess what? We had an 80% uptake. 80% of the people actually said, oh, wow, that actually applies to me. Yet you call it racism. I call it you just pick dumb words to begin with. <laughs> Understood. Uh, and the thing is, you know, in life, there's a lot of things that aren't racist, but people look for connections. For example, if you're applying for a job, and you know somebody that works there, of course you're going to use that. If you apply for a job and you find out that one of the CEO went to the same college as you, of course you're going to use that. And that CEO might turn around and go, yeah, he graduated from XYZ University. Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to give him a shot. That doesn't mean you hate other people. Those are the types that's of right. connections that happen in our society. And that's why that's maybe right. it pays. You make it a difference. Like I'm going to go to that better college. I'm going to take out a loan because of the network that I'll get when I get out. It doesn't mean you're cheating or that people are hiring you because they don't like uh, a certain race. These are the, the connections that make success. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, 
I have, you know, traveled the country. Literally, we've traveled almost 110,000 miles at this point over the past several years. Uh, crisscrossing, talking to entrepreneurs, most of those actually minority entrepreneurs. And I'll tell you what, none of them are asking for more government and higher taxes and more regulations. Not a single one. I can <laughs> promise you that, right? They want the government to get out of the way and let them do what they do best, which is innovate and come up with great ideas, believe in themselves, hire people, believe in their business. That is the American dream that they're looking for. And that's what you've done. Al Alfredo Ortiz has got a brand new book out. It's called The Real Race Revolutionaries, How Minority Entrepreneurship Can Overcome America's Racial and Economic Divides. Listen, it's early in January. Maybe this is the year you finally decide to be your own business leader. Don't let the... And naysayers tell you you can't. Uh, uh, people like you uh, let you know you can, and you have a handbook to show it. Alfredo, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate it. Go get them. Uh, listen, when we come back, your turn. I want to hear your story. one 408 The other thing is, do you believe this whole docudrama uh, is now dead? Because just about everyone seems to have taken uh, classified information. We're also looking at how the GOP is shaping up and the investigations are going to be running. And now, basically, everybody saying that Kevin McCarthy would be a lame duck the day he got the job as speaker seemed to be flat out wrong. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. People don't realize this, but the normal part of classified documents is I go to a secure reading room, they show me the documents, I check them out and check them back in as if I'm in the library. If I take notes about them, I leave the notes in the secure reading room. I don't take any paper when I leave. That being said, it's a little bit different being president or vice president or state department head, secretary of state, because you have more documents. And there really is a problem of overclassifying everything. The menu at the White House is classified. So there are <laughs> problems. I'm not kidding. There are problems with this. Wow, that is uh, Senator Rand Paul talking about the revelation the former vice president said in my stack of boxes, there was classified information. And I told him there was. And then FBI came and has taken it. They left it in there uh, safe. And originally, Mike Pence didn't have it, didn't think he did. It was packed up. Now, keep in mind, if you want to talk about the utter definition of chaos, think about the last administration. The vice president had to be ushered away because of the January 6th uh, insurrection, riots, whatever you want to call it, protests. But they were chanting, hang Mike Pence. And then he gavels in the Electoral College results. He is not speaking to the president, who basically did not defend him at all. So this great relationship to, of two opposites that did so well for four years don't have any relationship at all. And the vice president stays for the inaugural, but the president doesn't. So he packs up all his boxes we know about Mar-a-Lago, and it just stands to reason that maybe during that time that the vice president with his staff, they packed up overpacked. Now, it could be one brief from a daily, you know, a daily brief that he took. Not many people think that he's corrupt, but I did find out this. In 2009, it became uh, the vice president had the ability to declassify. So maybe he felt he declassified it, but he doesn't even know what it is because no one knows what it is. They saw it with the classified folder. They put it aside. They contacted the DOJ who said was sending the FBI. Uh, Alex, listening in Mount View, California. Hey, Alex. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I wanted to make two points about Taiwan. 
Uh, first is that over the past two decades, Taiwan invested most of its uh, offshore money and technology in China, shifting the balance of power in favor of China away from the U.S. And the second thing is that when most people talk about Taiwan, most of the Fox News commentators, they talk about what the American government will do this and this over Taiwan against China. But it is not the American government that determines who goes to war. It is the American people who will determine whether we go to war over China, over Taiwan, I mean. And I myself do not want to go to war over Taiwan. Well, I think there's a couple of things that happen. Certain things happen. There's no time for a vote. If we're invaded, uh, okay, I don't really, I'm not sure we're going to fight back. When you look at Hong Kong, the way they steamrolled it, that wasn't our line in the sand, but we thought that they were going to honor their treaty. When it comes to Taiwan, I think we give them the weapons so they fight. But our policy is in place, and if there's a problem with that, you don't elect the man or woman that's running. So the problem with this administration is the president says one thing three times, we're going to war if, if, if Taiwan's evaded, and then the State Department goes, no, we're not. Uh, and the chief of staff goes, no, the president's going But three times he said it. So they don't even know what their policy is. But I think if we allow Taiwan to go, it's in our national security interest, even in, especially in the short term, that we do not allow the number one provider of chips to be controlled by our number one enemy. And I think the day that we say we're not going to defend Taiwan, the next day they get overtaken. So I think that the American people should understand with being the world's premier superpower and investing in defense, one of the reasons is to keep free and open markets. And we do have an obligation to a degree to be a policeman for the world. Doesn't mean we get involved in everyone, but Taiwan is one. We'd have to let them know that that is a red line. I just don't think you can steamroll it. And I don't think Japan should. Uh, I love that Japan is doing what they're doing. They're building up. I like that South Korea is a formidable, uh, a formidable has formidable defense systems and, and can fight. I mean, this helps us in that area. And soon they'll let them know that Taiwan's an ally. I mean, what is uh, China doing? Why is it necessary? They have trade relations. They're a prospering government. They only are upset, and thanks for the call, Alex, because they are actually a free society, allowing for recreation, allowing for advancement, allowing for free and unencumbered travel. No one's spying on everything they do and gives them loyalty and patriotic points for not coming out against the government. So they're not communist. And how can you explain it? Chinese people, same heritage, same genes, uh, have a chance to live a, a great life and be an economic engine because they have private incentive and private enterprise to a degree. And I think it's to our advantage, our national interest, to not just defend the island of Taiwan, but it's in our interest to have an ally in that area. You're looking at an aggressive country that's making its own islands in order to set up bases in the middle of the South China Sea. If you don't think that it's to our advantage to have Guam and Japan and Taiwan, I don't think you have a full handle on the map and the, uh, and the aspirations of China. You can't put your head in the sand. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade.
<laughs> Hello, welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. A lot to discuss today. Uh, we know there's going to be a meeting. I, you know, I'm seeing uh, I'm frustration. And I, I feel it, too, because when I prepare for the show and I have to do uh, one of the major stories is our broken border. I'm saying to myself, I say the same thing every day, and it's so consequential, but no one ever does anything. I see Republicans are beginning to move uh, because of the cartels taking over the border cities and what's happening. And in Arizona, I don't know what you were thinking voting in. Hobbs because she is taking apart the storage containers and allowing everybody to come through while reversing uh, school choice. So it's unbelievable. At the bottom of the hour, Martha McCallum will be here. We'll expand on that conversation. Today, also Rick Scott, Senator Braun, Senator Johnson, Senator Lee will host a press conference. They're going to talk about what they exactly will do in order to raise the debt ceiling, which is what I think is important. Let everybody know the what's at stake and what you'll cut. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by Crunch Fitness. Interested in owning your own business in a growing $30 billion industry? Check out Crunch Fitness at crunch.com. Number three. We have talked about the fact that the Abrams are an incredibly capable system, but it's a very expensive system to operate and to maintain. Uh, It has a jet engine. That doesn't mean that the Ukrainians can't learn it. Uh, It just means that we have to factor all that stuff in. As John Kirby uh, knows the military, mostly naval admiral, Ukraine says, thanks, uh, thanks a lot. Uh, but is it enough? Yet another reversal. The U.S. decides to give Ukraine our coveted Abrams tanks, about 30. Now it's up to Europe to send theirs. They got about 2,000. Uh, will they and how long until our tanks are actually targeting Russians? What is it going to take for this administration to quickly give the Ukrainians what they need? Number two. And I'm sorry. Swalwell? You all know does not have the or should have the responsibility to serve on the Intel Committee. We are not going to provide him with the secrets to America. GOP on the move. Committees take shape and showboating lefties get the boot from certain committees, but not from all. Plus, uh, Pelosi gets a tongue in cheek salute. Number one. Did you take any classified documents with you from the White House? Uh, I, I did not. Do you see any reason for anyone to take classified documents with them leaving the White House? Well, there'd be no reason to have classified documents. That is ABC's lead anchor, pressing Mike Pence. And you know why? Because Mike Pence was really commenting on Donald Trump. But man, have things changed. Pence was found to have classified documents. Not many turned it over right away. Number two is Donald Trump is not the only president, former president, to have uh, classified information, have some controversy. The current guy does. And still some major questions to ask. But does it neutralize the whole conversation? To a degree, sure. But what it does is get specific to say, how many more classified documents are you going to have? Why did you have him as vice president? And what no one can get their head around is, Mr. President, why do you have him as senator? And how many years did you have him? You're upset that Donald Trump had his for six months and he gave back 16 boxes. You had him for at least six years. Andy Carr, chief of staff of Bush 41 and 43, was on with Neil last night and just talked about this classification problem that more than just one person Donald Trump has Cut six. It seems to be out of control. I would like to point out that classified documents aren't always only read in a skiff. And the president certainly looked at classified documents in the Oval Office. And and my office was always swept by the Secret Service. So we made sure that people weren't listening in or whatever. But it wasn't as if every document is only viewed in a skiff. And when you leave the White House, uh, the principal almost never 
cleans up his own mess or packs his own boxes. He has a lot of people helping. And I would suspect that that's what the situation was with President Trump. I suspect that's what it was with Vice President Biden. And I suspect it was that way with Vice President Pence. But having said that, it is wrong to take classified documents and to not to make sure they're secure. And I think this is a problem. Chief of staff would help, too, like Andy Card. That's why George Bush doesn't have any, either one. Real quick, the difference, the military. You're caught with any of these, you go to jail. Kurt Schlichter, a, a veteran, on last night, cut 10. There's two. There, there, there's a tool, dual-track justice system in America. If you were an E-4 sergeant, okay, and you had this stuff at your house, again, you'd be right there next to me at Leavenworth making big rocks into little ones. These guys aren't. And they're not going to. Nobody is. Yeah. What's going to happen is suddenly it's going to become not a big deal anymore. And we can't have a dual track system. I want all these guys, including the ones I like, to be treated exactly the same as that sergeant who screws up and takes a TS document. It would be interesting. Plus, you better have staffers that do that. They should be responsible, too. When we come back, I'm going to go on the air with Harris Faulkner at the bottom of that. Then I'll be able to take some calls. Then Martha McCallum uh, will join us in studio. It's going to be a big hour. So glad you're here. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. We're going to go on with Harris Faulkner about our moments. And then we'll talk about Eric Swalwell. We'll talk about Adam Schiff being kicked off the intel committees, of course. Uh, and uh, zero Georgia voters had a bad experience uh, despite Jim Crow 2.0, but the DOJ is still suing the uh, Georgia legislature for passing voter reform laws. They should be replicated in every, uh, certainly every Republican state. Everybody wants to tighten. We want to make sure our vote counts. Uh, we don't want people saying that if you don't give water to people online that you're racist, but uh, evidently, um, evidently that is indeed the issue. Uh, we'll discuss that and so much more. A uh, couple other things. I just want you to hear a little about the outrage that people feel, uh, some people feel, about the fact that Kevin McCarthy's doing this. Here he was explaining himself yesterday, cut 20. This is not anything political. This is not similar to what the Democrats did. Those members will have other committees, but the Intel Committee is different. The Intel Committee's responsibility is the national security to America. Look, I respect Hakeem Jeffries' support of his conference and his people, but integrity matters. So Hakeem Jeffries wrote a letter after they told Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell, you're not kicked off all committees, you're off off the Intel Committee. And why is that? Eric Swalwell, you know why. He's dating a, 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 a Chinese spy. He didn't know it at the time, but he's been totally compromised. She was inside his campaign. And he would, they were briefed, all the leadership was, about Eric Swalwell. And Kevin McCarthy, when he was minority leader, said, I cannot believe Nancy Pelosi are leaving him on the Intelligence Committee, knowing that he's compromised. Who knows what else they're listening to or what else they have on him, but they left him on. For Adam Schiff to make up a whistleblower scenario, uh, says, I never met with a whistleblower when they've already met with his staff. For him to come out and say that Donald Trump's taxes, uh, uh, when you see Donald Trump's taxes, you're going to make some huge revelations. There was absolutely none except for you'll never make that much money in your life. And number two, uh, when they came out and leaked Don Jr.'s testimony in real time from his committee while saying that Devin Nunes' 
uh, uh, memo that he put out was all false. So all these things, he just led up to the lack of credibility for Adam Schiff. So he's kicked off those committees. But he says he'll regret this, and we'll discuss that. Uh, and Georgia voters and the experience that they had uh, they were overall. So in a matter of moments, we're about to go on. So let's uh, share each other's audience. Here's Harris, Faulkner, and me. In a heated hearing last year. The White House promptly called you and said, sick the FBI on parents at school board hearings. Senator, I did not speak with anyone from the White House. What would have led you to do this? It is so over the top. This memo is about violence and threats of violence. General Garland, you have weaponized the FBI and the Department of Justice. It's wrong. It is unprecedented to my knowledge in the history of this country. And I call on you to resign. So that was October 2021. Uh, Fast forward in focus now and simulcasting from his radio studio, Brian Kilmeade, co-host of Fox and Friends and host of One Nation with Brian Kilmeade. Um, Brian, first of all, not much has changed since those hearings. Do you think it's about to with Chairman Jordan now getting a response from the White House that they want to work in good faith with him? Well, you got a better answer than Comer got with basically, yeah, we'll decide what we're going to cooperate with. But my sense is, by the way, I got to check the, my alerts. Did, uh, did Garland resign? He didn't, right? Uh, even though he was requested to? I didn't think so. So here's the thing. If they are going to investigate this, I have to question their cooperation because if it turns out that we can, and we know this direct line of the communication with the teachers union right up to this administration, if they're going to investigate this, I don't think they're going to love the result. My sense is they're going to get in there and try to divert or distract or get close and then pull back. But this is something we got to get to the bottom of, investigating parents because they spoke up at school board meetings and they might have been listed as terrorists because they were too aggressive. No, when they stood up and spoke out, it was because they didn't like what their kids were learning. And almost every mm. parent, this is the danger thing for Democrats. If you, wanted to, if you want the country to unite, turn on parents. Because they don't care about Democrats or Republicans, they care about their kids. So this is a very dangerous, very dangerous committee for the Democrats, Harris, if you ask me. Very dangerous. Maybe that's why they want to make sure their hand is in it. Well, and, and when, you say, when you say to somebody that you're going to negotiate in good faith, those are the kinds of words that parents are listening to because they feel like they haven't been heard uh, in any spectrum. And when you go to those meetings, and I've been to a couple in different states, um, they're bipartisan. The, the unity is non-political. It's the child in their household or the children in their hi- household. And think about this. This was a raging story when that off-year election happened that had Governor Yunkin beat a very established former Governor McAuliffe. 100%. That doesn't happen if everything that we discussed wasn't real and the parents weren't legitimately outraged because that was happening in a Democratic district and then it happened in a state. And then we get exposed about something else. 17 separate districts not telling people that their kids that they earned merit scholarships because you wanted to flatten out the playing field. So I think this is, this is a big one to get to the mm-hmm. bottom of. I don't want to see political points. I just want to see the reality below it because I think I know where it's heading. Well, and there are going to be so many more parents going to board meetings. 
I mean, we have there to. Is. There is. There's, there's woke to talk about now. There's, you know, we don't get letters home asking us if it's okay to talk about sexual things with really young kids. There are a lot of reasons why we as parents across America will engage. So they, they've got to get to the bottom of how parents have been treated. All right, let's get to this. Democrat Congressman Eric Swalwell is lashing out. He's very upset at Speaker Kevin McCarthy for booting him and Adam Schiff off the House Intelligence Committee. The Speaker also removed Ilhan Omar from House Foreign Affairs. All three are calling their dismissals an act of political vengeance in a joint statement. Swalwell with a threat. He's going to regret the day that he uh, has given me more free time. I'm not going to be quiet. I'm not going to back down. I'm going to do everything I can uh, over the next two years to hold Mr. McCarthy uh, and the people he struck this corrupt bargain with accountable. That's like rue the day. Anyway, Speaker McCarthy defending his decision in a very tense exchange with a reporter. If you want to talk about Swalwell, let's talk about Swalwell. But it wasn't just us who were concerned about it. The FBI was concerned about putting a member of Congress on the Intel Committee that has the rights to see things that others don't because of his knowledge and relationship with a Chinese spy. does not have the or should have the responsibility to serve on the Intel Committee. Well, it looks like he knew the assignment. He got right down to why he did it. Brian? So Eric Swalwell coming out speaking publicly because he's against something Kevin McCarthy's doing is not going to resonate anywhere. He'll get on MSNBC and Morning Joe will pat him on the back. Uh, maybe he'll take his shirt off and go to Saudi Arabia again. I'm not really sure. Stop. But Eric, but, which he did. But Eric Swalwell earned his way off that committee. I mean, it's a prestigious committee. And he, he went on to say in his comments that it's a traditionally a bipartisan committee. True. But that was all blown up during the Russia investigation, which turned out to be a total hoax. When you, when you stop people from investigating certain things because it would have led people away from any connection between Donald Trump and Russia and would have stopped this thing in its tracks and saved the American people a lot of time and really cut our foreign policy off at its knees. But listen, there was this woman that got interned, then got hired full-time, that was extremely tight with Eric Swalwell. It's up to him to describe how tight. I wasn't there. But they were, he was at the inner sanctum of Eric Swalwell's legitimate legislative decisions and was part of his re-election campaign. And then she turns out to be in bed with the Chinese government. That's called being compromised by a Chinese spy. The last person, one of the last, uh, outside uh, uh, maybe somebody else down there, uh, there, the last person possibly uh, that should be on the Intel Committee. But I thought it was pretty good, Harris. They didn't say you shouldn't be on any committee like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Or Gosar, he's saying just not on this committee. And well, if Elon Omar is, is, uh, is anti-Semitic, and that is not our foreign policy, so that's uh, pick another, you know, yeah. pick another committee. Yeah, and that's why I said he obviously knew the assignment, <laughs> the speaker, because he knew he look he came ready with exactly why he did it and had receipts laid out um, shorter than yours. You, you had much more detail there, but it's, it's there to get. Okay, all the liberal hand-wringing or pearl-clutching or whatever you want to say about Georgia's voting integrity law was meaningless. A new poll shows that 0% of black voters had a poor experience while voting in November's midterm elections. Zero that they polled. A far cry from these claims we heard over and over and over again. It is the most pernicious thing. This makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. Our remnants of Jim Crow, I shouldn't even say remnants, revivals, 
an attempted revival at Jim Crow? A Jim Crow KKK-like caucus. Their strategy right now is to pass a bunch of racist voting laws, effectively a new Jim Crow in the South. From an op-ed, this quote, Georgia's election system neither walks nor talks like the insidious duck it was described as. The only question left to be answered is whether the chicken littles in the press will admit to their error. Well, there's a little bit of poultry for everybody there. Brian? So, Harris, let's just refresh uh, our viewers and our listeners' memory. Remember, one of the things was you shouldn't be giving out water to people online. Have the voting precinct do it. Why? Because you don't want to manipulate people. One is coffee. Next thing you know, it's a gift certificate. Let's do that. Okay, fine. And then they said it's horrible. People are going to be passing out. I'm pretty sure everyone survived. Number two, they curtailed some Sunday hours and said we don't want drop boxes in places we can't control, them, but we'll have drop boxes. And they did it and they passed it. And they started and decided, well, I think well, some major corporations decided to pull out. Major League Baseball decided they're not worthy of the All-Star game. Do you remember when the President of the United States says, when I'm wrong, I'll admit it? I won't be right all the time, I'll admit it? Mr. President, uh, Harris has some room on her show today and possibly tomorrow. Uh, go admit you're wrong. Admit you overreacted. And every other state, Democrat or Republican, replicate what Georgia did. Because it worked then and it worked for the runoff election. It is nothing. Nobody challenges that election. So there's an apology needed. You know, we, we've asked him to sit over and over. I really appreciate the advocacy. And you are spot on about the fact that he promised. He made a promise to the American people he would admit when he was wrong. Right. I'll sit perched and wait. Brian, great to see you in focus. You've got a radio show to do. Thanks for uh, simulcasting for a few minutes of and, it. And thank you. We shared each other's audiences. Thanks, Harris Faulkner. Uh, appreciate it. good. All right. So, see you soon. So listen, Mar uh, Martha McCallum's coming up in a matter of moments, and we're going to a break right now. Perfect, Harris Faulkner. You got me out perfectly on time, and you had a chance to see what I look like, which is also exciting, I think, for you. And I've never been wrong, but I will apologize for the record. As soon as I'm wrong, I will. But I can't think of a time in which I'm wrong. Let me think about it in the break. Maybe I'll change my mind. Don't move. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Before we left the White House, uh, the attorneys on my staff went through all the documents uh, at both uh, the White House and our offices there uh, and at the vice president's residence to ensure that any documents uh, that needed to be turned over to the National Archives, including classified documents, uh, were turned over. So we went through a very careful a process in that regard. So that was uh, Mike Pence saying, listen, when I left, we did it in an organized way. And then a couple of days ago, it looks like Mike Pence had somebody go through his stuff and they found classified documents. They alerted the uh, DOJ and the FBI is coming to get him. Uh, with me right now is Martha McCallum. Martha, this story uh, expanded yesterday around now uh, with Mike Pence's revelation. How did that change everything? You know, I, I think that each side is always hopeful that the other person finding some documents is going to make life easier for them. But I find the whole thing uh, just to be reflective of what a bloated bureaucracy we have in America, how there aren't really any sort of 
clear systems for the way these things are done. I think most of us operate under the assumption that if someone tells you you're not allowed to bring something home because it might breach national security, that you would abide by that. But apparently the people in the highest reaches of our government think that different rules apply to them. If you know any one of these individuals wanted to go through a process to say, can we please declassify these? Because I would like to bring them with me when I leave office. I know there are some other copies, but what's the procedure for me taking these home, right? Um, and, you know, you're the captain of the ship as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, it, it's very unfortunate that these things are being found and it just makes everything look like the rules only apply to, you know, to normal people. Do you remember, <laughs> do you remember seeing the pictures? It might have been video of the helicopter waiting for Donald oh, yeah. Trump and those and those big box cartons yeah. of, of everybody paper. carrying boxes. No, everybody it. carrying boxes back, you know. I mean, there there needs to be a, you know, why isn't this the Secret Service to me is the entity that should oversee the moving out of uh the White House or vice presidential offices to make absolutely sure. And if we need to do the check right after the pre, the person moves yeah. into this other location, then let's do it then as well. You know, if, if most people in America, if you get fired from your corporation, they're going to come watch you pack up your or office. you don't get that opportunity. Exactly. Or they just pack it up Or they'll for go you. through it all for you because they want to make sure that you're not going to share, you know, company secrets or confidential information with others. Why do corporations in America have a much more productive, clean process on this than, than the U.S. government does? A hundred percent. So also when you think about the military and we've covered reported this before, did you give up intelligence information when you took a still picture yeah. in front of a submarine and they say behind you in that picture that you're sending home to your family is sophisticated equipment. So Kurt Schlichter on yesterday with Fox News at night said this about the differences. Cut, a, uh, cut 10. There's two. There, there, there's a tool, dual track justice system in America. If you are an E4 sergeant. Okay, and you had this stuff at your house. Again, you'd be right there next to me at Leavenworth making big rocks into little ones. These guys aren't, and they're not going to. Nobody is. Yeah. What's going to happen is suddenly it's going to become not a big deal anymore, and we can't have a dual-track system. I want all these guys, including the ones I like, to be treated exactly the same as that sergeant who screws up and takes a TS document home. I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. And and what one thing I don't understand as someone who, you know, is basically a rule follower, <laughs> um, why would these other findings negate the wrongdoing? You know, why is it why do they cancel each other out? Well, because this person did it and that person did it, then that means that this is gonna go away. It should be bad for, for all Everybody. of them. Now you can have different degrees of circumstances and you know there could be mitigating circumstances that will come into play but but there has to be an accountability for these things because or or it doesn't matter or we say you know what take all the classified stuff home you want and we're also not going to get this you know young sailor on the submarine for taking a picture either because we didn't bust the presidents for it either but but why even have intelligence things why not just tell everybody everything and then your whole our whole defense <laughs> yeah. is going to be compromised exactly so when you say what do you mean it nullifies everything I think people are saying that because the practicality of prosecuting one president, not the other, the practicality of going after the vice president, not the president. So that's what they're looking at. But when you put two special prosecutors on their own path, they're not going to come back saying, let's agree not to recommend prosecution.
Could could be true. Um, you know, in terms of the political side of it, I think there's a suggestion that one of these sort of cancels out the other. Well, you know, now what are they going to say about Trump now that Biden's done it as well and vice versa? So I, I think politically that becomes a question for how people process it. But I think they might be getting this wrong. I, I think people don't like this. I, I think people feel that it smacks of there being, as as this gentleman just said, one system of rules for people in power. They've seen it since Hillary Clinton smashing her hard drive. And, you know, way before that, when, you know, files that were related to travel gate or whatever we called it back then. Oh, you know what? I thought I didn't have them, but it turned out they're in a big file in my apartment. It's such, excuse me, BS. And people see it. They know it. Also, I think there's something to the fact that some of this paperwork, we got to, at one point, we got to find out what, what this is. You know, is it is it a past leader's personal life? You know, is it stuff that doesn't really apply anymore about threats that don't exist like Saddam Hussein? Maybe. You know, that you have Then they should then? be declassified. Then if you want to bring them back to your residence, you should go through the process and say, look, I'm interested in these 16 documents. I think they have historical value. They have value to me personally. Can, can you guys register these documents as being at my house as well? Something. You don't just put them in a box and take them because you feel like it. And by the way, you know how big these staffs are with these senators and these presidents? Just like, listen, guys, I'm going to I'm going to need this. Uh, I don't know what it takes. Trump holding up the page. I want to take this home with me to he goes to his golf course every weekend. Right. I'm taking this home over to New Jersey. Uh, Let me just can you can you uh, go get this cleared? And you know what, Brian, short of that, it's not it's not unreasonable to assume that they were snuck out, that they didn't want people to know that they had them. Right. Because otherwise you would go through the process and say, I, I'm going to take these with me. Can we declassify them? Go through the process. So if you're if you are hiding, taking them, no matter who you are on this list, uh, then then we need to know why. What was in them and why did you want to have them? It's um, the other thing is, as soon as they actually you know actively started looking for them in these places, they found them pretty quickly. Right. So what does that say oh, about the point. Yeah. What does well, it say about the process hours. that happened when they moved? Right. They weren't why are we going to, uh, Why are we going to Wilmington the week before? Then the FBI comes in. Yeah, what's with volunteer? that? Yeah. That, I mean, what kind of legal process works that way? You know, you would think what they would say is, you know, because he was going, he's going to Camp David, I believe, this weekend, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, why didn't they do that last weekend? Sir, you know what? If you want this to go away, let's – you go to Camp David. I'm going to hit FBI both come in, places. Search both places. Don't touch anything in the meantime. Don't go in anywhere near these places. He goes in, walks, you know, and this is what they were saying about Trump at Mar-a-Lago, too, that, you know, he had access to them that whole time. Honestly, I don't understand why when they first discovered that those documents had all been taken to Mar-a-Lago, why didn't they just say, sir, you know what, we're coming tomorrow, uh, first thing in the morning, and we're going to take everything we need to take. And then you can argue about whether or not you have the right to keep it as the process moves forward. But for right now, we're going to take it uh, back to the archives and lock it all down. So Jim Trusty, who's his attorney, wasn't there at the time, but guy's been yeah. hired since, is when they first showed up, he gave him 16 boxes back. That's a lot. He said, yeah, there was stuff I'm going to hold on to. All right, well, we disagree on that, so lock it up till we come back. Here's a subpoena. I'd like it all back. I want to be able to search. Well, we'll get back to you on that. We're going to negotiate the subpoena. We're ignoring it. We're going to raid. They raid, and it becomes bigger than life. Yep. This is what Marco Rubio said is where we're at yesterday. So this is what he said yesterday on primetime. Cut 11. Anytime documents are removed from their proper setting, especially after someone's been serving for a while, uh, it's a problem. I don't care who did it. I think the Biden connection one is more concerning for the following reason, and that is, number one, we're talking about eight years of vice presidential service. And the one that's really bizarre is documents going back to the Senate. In the Senate, you, you really, it's not like you can bring these things into your office without the proper protocols being followed to begin with. And generally, most members of the Senate can't do that if they don't have a, 
a staff member who's cleared to bring you documents to read and has to come in a special uh, secure pouch that has to be locked, and that person themselves has to have the clearance to be able to move it around. So for a senator to take classified documents, they would have to do it almost deliberately. Meaning Senator Biden took documents. Right. Does, does that mean because Mike that, Pence took them by mistake? Yeah. Does that mean it's okay for Senator Biden to take them? Well, there are different rules that apply to a president who can declassify. So and could a an, vice president, though, too. There's, yes, and there's an ongoing discussion about whether or not President Trump did what he needed to do to declassify those documents. That's something that's ongoing. Um, the vice president has some abilities to declassify, some that don't that don't exist or that are different for him. A senator, no, you, you have to actually, you know, Sandy, Sandy Berger was not a senator, but he took them out in his socks, right, um, in from the Library of Congress and got busted for it. So, you know, the other big question, and I think with regard to Biden, the most sensitive issue of all of this is, A, that he was a senator, as you point out, B, that during that same time period, his son was living in the House, had, a, a, by his own admission, an addiction problem that was wrecking his life, and C, was involved in business transactions with Ukraine and China and other Eastern European countries. So all those things were happening at the same time. It's problematic. You know, there's this Ukraine memo that he wrote that people say is so detailed that, that you know, there's a possibility that maybe it came from one of these documents. You know, we need to know the answer to this. There was a whole rundown in Ukraine with their Maybe Hunter's the only one who knew that they were there. Biden says he didn't know they were there. So, I mean, well, we, we need to understand. Him, yeah. We need I mean, to understand. Yeah. We do. So let me ask him. Uh, it's up the Republicans can ask, and we could find out if they're going to be able to tell us what these documents contain or the topics in which uh, uh, was, on, was on these documents and which was told to me, and I should have thought about this, was it doesn't mean it's one page. Right. So a document could be 70 pages. Yeah, I so, know. So the other thing to keep in mind is if you really got something in Wilmington, to me you had to have because you got you walked away with notes, you walked away with a daily planner, you walked away with a schedule. Why are you getting that? What made you – why do you need surrounding documents unless there was something intriguing about those those classified documents that made you think – I want to find out what else he was up to that day. That's what I think. Uh, I think it's worthy of questions. And if it does lead, could that lead to Jim Biden's house, Hunter Biden's house? Can we see if they're in other locations? Because if they're in family members' house, I think it's a bigger problem. And then the question is, I mean, do you check if, to be equal justice? Are they going to look at Don Jr.'s house or Eric's house? I'm sure you could. I don't think either one of them any interest. But not many people are trying to get to the bottom of a laptop, which we suddenly realized is real. A revolving yeah. 10 oh, yeah. years of Biden And that's where these memos show up that talk about Ukraine. All of this is relevant to the investigation, to be sure. And I think they said that they also took some surrounding documents from Vice President Pence's situation as well. They took a lot. So we'll see, you know, what else comes from that. I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of this may turn out to be to not have malintent. But the, the fact that there's not respect for the way that these things are supposed to be handled, you know, in some cases, these, people's, people's names are in there. People's lives could be in jeopardy. National security is the main concern here. It should concern all of them. They should be embarrassed. They should be very embarrassed about this. When this is done, there'll be bipartisan legislation like the Electoral College. We should not have any more drama after the Electoral College on January 6th. All right. Thank that, you. That bipartisan. And this should be bipartisan. And there's going to be there's going to be new attention on forever. This is the end of the Biden administration. So starting these five days, uh, all documents got to be in a certain place where the National Archives and security will be there. Bonded people, they'll be able to look at this stuff. 
but not just the librarians who can get intimidated. And then they should also go to the homes where these people are going to be living after they serve and say, you know, this is the backup check. We just want to make sure that we didn't miss anything and anything that's here, we have to get it now. And I'll tell you what. If I'm president, and who knows, I could be. Are you going to be president? I'm thinking about it. Uh, if I do, all I need is the proper bumper sticker and one catchphrase. Mm, mm-hmm. Is that what you need still? Okay, we the, can work like on that. Like the peel away in the back, mm-hmm. not the magnets. I don't want the magnets because people take it off. I want them committed. Yeah, uh, to even, they come if you're going to take them wash. off, yeah, I want the glue marks to stay. Yep. Uh, but we'll talk about that in the break. Um, but at the end of it, I'll say, yeah, you guys check. You guys check Mar-a-Lago. Don't Absolutely. play me. Don't play right. me. You guys checked it. Right. All right. Uh, so Martha McCallum's here. When we come back exclusively, she'll tell us on what's on the story at three o'clock. And also some revealing polls that have one certain former president feeling pretty happy today. Don't move. Coming to you on a need to know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome back, everyone. Martha McCallum, uh, I had to just got off the phone with her agent. She will do more to know. Is this true, Martha? We're in negotiations. But, so it's still not done. In the nope. meantime, while, while your lawyer talks to mine, <laughs> can you tell me who's on your show today? Yeah, you know what? We're going to talk to John Kirby today. And um, obviously, this is a huge announcement that uh, we believe is coming at just minutes from now that the United States and Germany are going to be sending tanks to Ukraine. So there's a lot of questions about why now is the right time? Wasn't three months ago the right time? What has changed at this point that makes us want to make this commitment and the corruption that exists in Ukraine and where all the money is going? So we got a lot to talk about. Right. Evidently, they hired Deloitte, according to Senator, Senator Angus King last week. And he, he says, we told, I told Zelensky myself, if you want to stop our participation, find out, let us find out that there's corruption or our money's not going to the right place and this all will end. And then there was a big announcement yesterday. Some people were fired. There may be some. A lot. Eleven. The, the, the mayors in uh, in Kherson and in uh, Zaporizhia are both gone. Those are two really important places where a lot of money has gone. So, yeah. We got to see. Yeah, That's why they're see. not in NATO. <laughs> this is why Ukraine is not a member of NATO. It's because there was never a level of confidence that the government was transparent enough that we could put them into NATO and accept them into NATO along with the other NATO partners. So none of this is new to the Ukraine situation. Zelensky, you know, has done an amazing job and uh, he's up against a lot in the culture of his country. So we'll see. Let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Unplugged. Reclaim your privacy from big tech snooping with Unplugged. Visit Unplugged.com. Aaron Rodgers is blasting the woke culture that says his stance on COVID made him a bad guy because he didn't want to get the vaccine. There's heroes and villains in in sports and entertainment. And I think because of my stance on COVID uh, and maybe some other things, I've been cast as the villain. Especially Wait a second. Do you, you agree with that, Martha? He's not a villain. Do you look at that outside Green Bay? Is he a villain? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people have pushed back on him. I think they should leave him alone. He should have the freedom to do what he wants to do. If He's he, always in the news for a guy. I, yeah, I know. You know? Um, but no, I, I, I think, I don't think he's a villain, but I think he gets a lot of heat. I'm not sure he deserves. Next. Amazon's launching a new subscription prescription drug service so you can get Amazon to fill your prescriptions. How do you feel about that? Speed. 
We know we're going to get speed. Who's putting, who's put? you know what, I think of like Mr. Gower in It's a Wonderful Life. Like I want to know who's actually filling the medicine into the, I like old school family run pharmacies in my own town. And where they know I what your diseases are. Eye, exactly. And I know that they're not putting the wrong things in. I'm not saying that Amazon can't do it safely, but that's what I would be considering. I'm all for it. I'm open to new changes. Congratulations are in order. Paris Hilton's husband and, and she are parents. They welcome a baby boy via surrogate. Uh, the baby's brand new. No bad really? habits, no brand good new. habits. Brand new. Uh, how do you feel about it? We're so excited to start our family together, and our hearts are exploding with love for the baby boy. Congratulations. Right. Yeah. I no don't know. stretch marsh with surrogates. Yeah. I mean, is that why? I don't. I mean, I'm not prying into their personal life. I just don't know why they I'm have I'm going to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. Can you let me know why right. they have a Okay. Next. Uh, Chris Stapleton and Babyface to sing during the Super Bowl pregame. Country music star Chris Stapleton at the Super Bowl. Obviously, it's going to be huge. Fox Super Bowl and Babyface is going to sing America the Beautiful. And I the think biggest that story fantastic. is I will be there. You'll be That'll there. That'll be the big story. And the rest of us will be jealous. Not a big fan of Chris Stapleton. I know I'm one of the few. Oh, he's great. I love Chris Stapleton. He kind of does blues. I don't really. I feel like he's singing the I blues. I like blues. You do? I do. Doesn't it get you down? I mean. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm, it's like, wow, my, I'm doing better than that guy. <laughs> no, you know, but... Well, I'm not that sad. Right, but if I was sad, I wouldn't want to sing. That's the, <laughs> that's the difference. It helps to... It's cathartic. One mission left. Watch Martha at 3 o'clock on the story. Thanks, Brian. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.